When laws are unjust, they should be changed. And when people charged with enforcing the law point this out, it's worth listening. Jack Wilborn represents the Law Enforcement Action Partnership, or LEAP. He has arrested people for possession of cannabis and seen the consequences, which are too often life-changing in tragic ways. LEAP is focused on moving us toward federal action on cannabis laws, and Jack has statistics and real-life stories about the cascading effect of policing people based on unjust laws. If you care about the human cost of our outdated drug laws, you'll want to share this episode with your family and friends. Whether you're a subscriber or a first-time listener, please stop by and see us at cannaboomwithak.com. We are focused on how cannabinoids and CBD can help you achieve better wellness and, importantly, how to find CBD that's trusted and reliable. If you like the podcast, please subscribe and please leave a review so other people can find the show. And here is my interview with Jack Wilborn. Cannabis is booming and Cannaboom is on it. Welcome to the Cannaboom Podcast, where we interview experts on the changing story of humans, health, and hemp. From San Diego, here's your host, Tom Stacy. Hey, it's Tom. Welcome back to the Canboom Podcast. Today, we're excited to speak with Jack Wilborn, who is representing the Law Enforcement Action Partnership. Hey, Jack. Hi, how you doing? Really good. Big topic to talk about in terms of law enforcement and cannabis laws. And that's who you're representing is uh, ex-law enforcement officers, basically. Uh, represent uh, lots of law enforcement. fact is we are worldwide in over 20 countries. And um, we actually had one of the officers as a speaker for us sue the Royal Canadian Mounted Police because they wouldn't let him speak. So, oh. so he sued them and won. So he's one of our speakers. But we do have officers that are out, um, you know, on the, in the field that do speak. Most of our officers are retired because it is kind of time-consuming. Well, tell us about LEAP and what the organization does. Well, basically, their mission is to unite and mobilize the voice of law enforcement in support of drug policy and criminal justice reforms that make our community safer by focusing law enforcement resources on the greatest threats to public safety, promoting alternatives to arrest and incarceration, addressing the root causes of crime, and working towards healing police-community relations. We also envision a world in which criminal justice and drug policies keep our communities safer, ending the war on drugs and looking beyond the criminal justice system for a range of solutions to address society's ills or ill wills better, protect human rights, reduce violence and addiction, and build better respect for and trust in law enforcement. So in a nutshell, that's kind of what we're up. Well, that's a well-crafted statement. It sounds like a lot of people had input on that. Um, oh, yeah. So- <laughs> <laughs> that's, why I, that's why I don't try to put it in my own nutshell, because they did a very good job of it. Sure. So where the rubber meets the road, it's you guys sort of being a, a lobby for better drug policies. Well, we all do what we can. Um, some... Some people are supportive. Some people in LEAP support more of the legislative end. Let's work towards changing the legislation of, of things or, or how prisons are run or how prisons are dealt with. Those are all part of the criminal justice reform systems. So those are, you know, hand, LEAP's interested in those also, if that's where you're going to. Tell us how, how you became involved in LEAP. Well, it started when I was a rookie and I was out in... Uh, with an FTO, which is called a field training officer. You know, you go through the academy, and then they put you in the field for a few weeks. And the first time the first time you're out there, you know, you're kind of seeing what's going on. And then pretty soon, the training officer's giving you more of the load. And eventually, he comes out in civilian clothes, and you handle all the calls. And that's pretty much how they tell if you're ready to have what we call car command. Or you can go out and be an officer on your own without having to be supervised. So when that happened to me, um, it, it was one of those situations where they want to know if you you understand the traffic laws. So you have to stop everybody that violates a traffic law, no matter what it is. You know, in this case, I pulled over a kid that had a broken taillight. After, um, you know, the guy was a real nice kid, spoke real well his English was excellent and was really smart and you know I was just going to write him a, a fix-it ticket and my FTO caught a whiff of marijuana and it turned out he had a little tiny roach under his seat and you know ended up arrested going to you know getting a year in prison 
uh, had a list of uh, East Coast universities that were wanting to put him through it, and of course he lost all that. So basically, I trashed his life. <laughs> and, you know, that's how I felt, and I still feel that today. And, uh, you know, that is not what I joined the police department to do. And uh, uh, when I got real sick about a decade into working, I, you know, the Internet started becoming more available. And um, I started looking for other people that believed like I did that, you know, the drug war was a hoax pretty much. And you'll never stop it anyway. And so I found LEAP at the time, which was against prohibition. Unfortunately, when they started about 2003, they weren't really interested in the, you know, the normal police officer. Their big interest was pretty much in people who have been 25 years in the DEA and stuff like that, which we do have now. We have people in the DEA, judges, you know, lots of people that have worked in the criminal judge or criminal justice system and, you know, feel like we do, that this is a waste of people and money and everything. So your epiphany was seeing how a minor infraction could blow up someone's life who's otherwise law-abiding except for being a cannabis user. Well, he wasn't a cannabis user. I think that's the one thing that really stuck out is the roach was probably a quarter, you're not even a quarter inch long, and it was under his seat. And, you know, one of the things you kind of they frown on is if you follow these these things through to the end but I was just a rookie and I wanted to know what happened and it, I actually talked to his attorney and the guy tested negative for cannabinoid know, for metabolites so he had not been using he admitted that his friends had smoked and I'm you know knowing how that stuff worked he probably pitched it out the window and ended up under his seat so he was not a user yet he got the full brunt of the system and he paid for it the rest of his life yeah that's tragic when you multiply that by three, four hundred thousand cannabis arrests a year in this country, that's a big story. Yeah, it's you know, a lot of this is real sad. I mean, there's not any good views on it as far as you know. There's an attitude about drugs that we need to change, and that attitude came from, actually came from, I think, the Nixon administration. But um, you know, because most people think cannabis was you know when was cannabis outlawed originally well 1937 i think was um harry anslinger with the federal bureau of narcotics that was the whole okay what was that called well there was a marijuana stamp tax act i believe in the late 30s yeah so it wasn't prohibition it was taxed right it did roll into prohibition which you're right i think nixon really exacerbated that because there was research coming back. I mean, Nixon basically commissioned research and it came back saying cannabis is not a bad thing, but he kind of doubled down on uh, where we were at at that time, you know, kind of casting hippies as political enemies and wanting to incarcerate those people, hippies and, and people of color. And yeah, that certainly lasted, has lasted a long time. And I think we're, we're still dealing with it. Yeah. What broke the camel's back on that really was, Dr. Timothy Leary, you know, he was caught coming across the border with a joint in Texas, and um, he ended up in court and went to the Supreme Court, and he said, you know, if I admitted, if I bought the tax stamp, then I would be admitting to the state of Texas that I was violating their law, which puts you in double jeopardy. Mm-hmm. So the basically the Supreme Court agreed with him, and that basically killed the, the tax stamp. But uh, Nixon took over and went along with the schedule system after that for reasons you described. Right, Schedule One, making it designated as a, a drug with no redeeming value, medicinal value, when we know that's not true anymore. Well, you know, the issue is you have to think about how our government works. You know, according to them, it has no medicinal value. Well, at the turn of the 20th century, the top three prescribed medications had cannabis in them. You know, and so you ask, why isn't this legal medication? And the reason it's not considered a medicine is because 
the FDA has to approve stuff to approve something to get it actually through the testing we have. It has to be based on a single molecule on a single target. And of course, you know, cannabis has plenty of molecules to hit plenty of targets, which makes it virtually impossible to test with the methods we know. We'd have to test the world to get accurate numbers. So that will never pass as long as we have separate molecules. It will never be an FDA-approved drug. But you can ask the same question, you know, who invented drugs if they weren't drugs before 19, what was 1908 or whenever the uh, Pure Food and Drug Act was passed? You know, so that's what made cannabis no medicinal value was because the FDA couldn't prove it. LEAP has sort of been a grassroots effort from law enforcement officers who have seen the injustice of this and want to try to move us past that. Yes, basically that's true. It's, you know, if, if the bottom line is we saw this to be an issue, we're on the front lines, we have boots on the ground, but nobody wants to listen. So in practical terms, how do you make progress on this agenda? Well, you know, when I, last uh, year, I spent most of the legislative session down talking to legislators, you know, trying to get them to understand that this is, you know, not working. Where are you, Jack? What state are you in? Phoenix is okay. where I'm going. Actually, I live in Peoria, but which is right next to Phoenix, pretty much. Is cannabis legal in Arizona? Uh, we have medical marijuana only. And um, simple, we're the only state that simple possession is a felony. Oh, wow. Are there still a lot of arrests taking place for that? Yeah, I, I can't remember what it was last year, but it's somewhere around 10,000. That's significant. Yeah, we have an initiative that hopefully will help that's on the ballot this November. Among active duty police, do you believe your beliefs would be in the minority or majority? Or what, what percentage of policemen do you think see cannabis as something that shouldn't be outlawed? Well, you know, I see more and more of them as I speak with more and more officers coming in. I don't know if they've, you know, seen it when they were in college or whatever, but more and more officers coming in seem to realize the futility of it. Um, it's difficult to talk to officers. You talk to them about, you know, how prejudiced it is, and they boo-hoo you away. You know, and most cops aren't prejudiced. It's just the whole mechanism is prejudiced. You know, it's not one particular. Are there prejudiced cops? Of course. Are there not prejudiced cops? Most of them are not prejudiced. But, you know, the mechanism filters you and forces those kind of situations. You know, um, Dr. Timothy Leary, when he came across the border was with a joint, was looking at 10 years in prison and $50,000 or some crazy amount. So these are, the, these are the problems that we have, and these are the problems we need to, to resolve. And over time, what we've done is we've, you know, basically taught everybody that if it's a drug, it's bad. And, you know, you compare it to other drugs that we, we use and we have, there's really no comparison to many of these drugs. Certainly as an enforcement officer, your job is to enforce the statutes and the laws. And I guess there's some latitude there in how aggressive you are. If you, if an officer believes they smell some cannabis, they have the authority to look under the seat or in the trunk or all over the place, right? Uh, well, actually, one of the points I made to more than one legislator was when I was an officer, you know, if I got a call for the smell of marijuana, and I went out there and I could say, it's coming from this house. I could just kick its door in. <laughs> you need the authority to enforce the law. but And it's not up to you to decide if the law is just or unjust, right? You, you do your job. Well, well, you, yes and no. You know, sometimes you look at something, you go, this would be ludicrous to do this. You know, it wouldn't affect it. You know, it wouldn't change what happened. It wouldn't change what's going to happen in the future. You know, it's just, and sometimes you overlook things because of that. You know, it's like a body camera. I'd love to have a body camera, but it's a two-bladed two sword, you know, a two-edged sword because, you know, if, if you say yes, you'll see somebody that you might give a break to and somebody in a similar situation you don't give a break to. And so, you know, you can't do that anymore. Now you can't give a break to anybody. You get what I'm driving at? 
Yeah, it takes the discretion out of it. You're always being monitored, so you have to be absolutely consistent and and not use your judgment. Yeah, and and you know, I'm sure I overlook drugs that you know, if I didn't feel, you know, I didn't worry about it if I didn't feel there was a danger to the public. You know, that's how I pretty much looked at most of police enforcement was if this is not a danger to the public, I probably shouldn't be involved with it. And, you know, sometimes that uh, conflicted with laws. And when that happened, I have to try to do what's, what the legal law says. I mean, that's the bottom line of any police department. The fallacy with that system is, you know, what are police here for? You know, most people don't know what police are for. And police are here to reduce crime. And the way you tell how effective a police force is, is by how little of the police force you actually see. Because if they're suppressing crime, you don't see them. Uh, unfortunately, we've kind of lost that view. And now we're chasing things, and we've made laws that are really moral, and they're, they affect what a person... When a person uses a drug, that's something he does to himself. You know, we don't need to legislate that. That's something that the that shouldn't be legislated. These are crimes against oneself or something. And we don't need to throw somebody in jail because somebody makes a mistake or whatever. But what we need to do is look at the law itself and say, is this something that doesn't hurt other people? If it doesn't hurt other people, then we shouldn't be enforcing it. You know, if you take a drug and it makes you where you can't drive, and you drive while well, you're endangering other people, you need to be hooked and booked. Now, if you're taking a drug and you're sitting at home doing whatever, you're not hurting anybody. Why should you be prosecuted? Right. It's sort of a victimless crime. Yeah. Well, they made the victim the state or themselves, or, you know, and they violated, you know, they basically thrown out our Fourth Amendment right. They've sunk our Bill of Rights with this war on drugs. That's the main reason I'm against it. You know, that's what happened. You know, that's the end product of Breonna Taylor was that, you know, we had these laws that allowed them to say, well, we saw her go there. And then they took 12 search warrants to the to the judge in less than 15 minutes. She had signed them and had them back to the officers. And Breonna Taylor's was in that. And there was no evidence at all that she was really involved in the drug use at all. So, you know, it's these warrants, they put drugs on it, and the judges go, okay, this is a, a thing we had to handle. It came along with, uh, I think they called it presumptive um, detention. Are you familiar with that? No, I'm not. Um, uh, I can't remember the Saltzman or Stillman or something back in Nixon's era actually came up with a way to detain people, and that was presumptive um, detention and, and the point if they had a drug that means they were dangerous to everybody and they had to be kept locked up you know that way they couldn't have people get you know arrest somebody and have them go out and bail and continue they could keep them locked up for indefinite amounts of time he's also the same guy that came up with the no knock and uh, associated with the group that wanted if you had three felonies you went to prison for life period well, that presumptive detention kind of maps back to the whole reefer madness idea that, you know, you're a danger to society. You could be a, an axe murderer if you get high with cannabis. Yeah, you could be an axe murderer with any drug, according to, you know, basically that. But yes, they targeted marijuana and heroin specifically. Well, and I mean, we all know through experience, cannabis doesn't really make you violent. Um, and again, we get back to Schedule 1, and even the definition of cannabis as a drug, I mean, it's an herb I grow in my backyard, you know, like oregano. Oregano is not considered a drug. It's an herb. Um, cannabis comes out of the ground. If you uh, hang it upside down and eventually decarboxylate it, it has effects. Um, but, you know, Ambien is a drug that's, that's manufactured in a lab. Cannabis um, is a natural herb. Is it really well, a drug? We could, do you know what Marinol is? Marinol. Okay, Marinol is a synthetic THC. It's in, I believe, uh, sesame oil. If you get it, it's a capsule that's full of sesame oil, 
and the THC is in the sesame oil in the capsule. That drug is synthetic, produced by the FDA. You go out to the FDA sites, there's been four deaths in four decades from Marinol. There have been no deaths from natural. Does that make it? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, I've heard that over and over that there's you can't attribute any deaths to cannabis um, other than accidents or something. But um, yeah, the just the idea that um, it, it, we know it's safe and is it properly scheduled? And I guess what I'm getting at is the, the law itself probably needs to change if we're going to change law enforcement. Well, yes, we're you know because you know when you're when you. The reason for law enforcement is, like I said, to make things safe. But the the bottom line is police are here to deal with crimes against other people. You smoking a joint is not a crime against somebody else. Neither right. is shooting heroin or snorting coke. But, you know, we don't advocate any of this, but we also don't advocate people get locked up for it. If they have an issue with it, let them get help to fix it. Right. Um, you know, you said earlier, too, that most police officers aren't prejudiced, there, but there is a racial, um, a large uh, discrepancy in who gets arrested, right? People of color overwhelmingly represent more of the cannabis arrests. Uh, you know, the, the actual numbers and, you know, sometimes you have to take it with a grain of salt, but they're pretty clear. You know, even worse, you know, even if you look at them as best case numbers or worst case numbers, um, it's basically one out of three blacks will go to jail when one out of 17 whites will go to jail, which does seem a little bit skewed. Um, and then you take the fact that there's less than 13 percent of Americans are black, you know, at least 13 percent of the population. Then you're looking at the ratio should be more like one out of 170 for black people. But it isn't. Wow. It's one out of three. And, yes, that's very sad. But, you know, it isn't just the arrest. It's once you get arrested, you go in. Now they want cash for a bail, for a bond to get out, if they let you out. You know, if they're held for one of these drug charges, they may be held for multiple days. And it's difficult to get bail. When they're held like that, they may be the family person, the family that brings home the, the food. So now you're starving the kids. So it propagates down a lot of areas. I don't know if that's where you're going with this, but. Well, sure. I mean, there's a ripple effect. It's um, like you mentioned the first uh, kid you pulled over. He was going to go to college. He probably that probably fell off the table. Um, it's hard to rent uh, an apartment. It's hard to get a job if you have that conviction on your record so yeah there's it's not just spending the night in jail it's a whole bunch of stuff that cascades out of that arrest yeah plus the cost but just a few of the things that come from drug prohibition is um like the u.s five percent of the world world's population and 25 percent of its um prisoners are from drug prohibition uh, reduce clearance rates for violent crime because they're dealing with drugs. Reduce trust and or respect for the police because they're you know they can't trust that they won't be arrested. Families broken by incarceration, where you have these kids that you know these family members they're in jail, incarcerated, and have to do without them. You know in, in, inequality is increased because we see that in the numbers. You know the racial problems. Reduce power of judges because they legislate. Now they're doing mandatory sentences. They're taking the ability of the judge to say this guy isn't a known criminal or this guy isn't, you know, I don't think this guy's going to go on to be more crime. And they're taking that away from him and saying, you've got to give him this many years. Um, it causes street, you know, powerful street and um, prison gangs. Mandatory minimum sentences is also that same issue. And there are few resources for um, treatment of this stuff. Homicides due to Telfor's, you know, informants and drug debts, criminal industrial complexes where they produce all these drugs, police resources diverted to drug cases, and it goes on and on and on. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's a picture of insanity. I mean, it's crazy. Um, just, so- just the way Einstein defined it, doing the same <laughs> thing over and over and expecting a different result. Well, you guys represent a, a hopeful aspect to this in that, as you said, you're, you got boots on the ground, you're on the front lines, and you can come back and tell people, hey, this isn't right. Tell me how much progress you've made. How, how long has LEAP been in existence, and, and have, have you guys had an effect on any, any laws? Well, you know, we support a lot of a lot of areas. I mean, a lot of places in the United States have LEAP speakers, and we try to go out and speak whenever we're asked. And it depends on the speaker what he targets. Some of them are, you know, talk about prison stuff and other things. I happen to be the kind of the drug angle person is what my interests lie. And um, so they vary. But we speak, and we help people with criminal justice, you know, even some of the people that have written legislation to do criminal justice reform, you know, it runs through uh, LEAP, and LEAP usually, you know, gives an opinion. We're not political, so we don't say, you know, we support this group or that group. We stay out of the politics. But, you know, unfortunately, the drug thing is a political hot potato. And, you know, I've gone to people that have welcomed me with open arms knowing I'm a police and then wanted to throw me out of their office because I wanted to legalize the drugs. Um, you know, and they, you know, they, their position is you just want everybody to use drugs. And my position is I don't want anybody to use drugs. But if they do, I don't want them thrown in jail. <laughs> you know, having a beer is nice. But don't throw people in jail for it. Smoking a joint might be nice. You know, there's a real push. Uh, I think Oregon this year has a, um, an initiative to legalize all drugs. So we'll see what happens with that. Yeah, we're seeing more um, psilocybin measures. One just passed in Ann Arbor already in Oakland and Denver, I think. But when you talk about the, the political aspect to it, it's, it's difficult to separate that, but it's about individual rights. And, you know, other guests I've had on have mentioned that in the 80s and 90s, normal and other groups were trying to say, hey, cannabis is an individual right. But it really wasn't until AIDS patients began taking cannabis to reduce their symptoms and we saw a reduction in, in their suffering that it began to gain traction in far as decriminalizing it because it's a medicine. And we now know it works for epilepsy, PTSD, Alzheimer's. There's a lot of applications for this as a medicine. And that seems to sway people more than the the individual right argument. Well, I think the people that I hear that come back to me and say, you're right, we should legalize drugs are usually the ones that their kid ends up being buried because their kid ends up addicted to something and, you know, OG's on it. And, you know, those are the sad things we run into is, you know, we tell people about this and they, you know, pop us out. And then we hear back from, yeah, I lost my son or I lost my grandson to some drug. I wish they had a way for him to go and get off it. You know, and, and that's, I think, a key to a lot of what, you know, you, you look at some countries, I'm sure you're aware of Portugal's drug rating and how um, in 2000 they basically realized they couldn't afford to keep incarcerating people. So in 2001, they decriminalized all drugs. And at that point, uh, it took time, but today they lose four people out of a million for drug overdose. We lose 185 out of a million for drug you know, per million for drug overdose, which way is better. Right. With that kind of case study, I mean, that's where you can say this isn't about politics. This is about common sense. Yeah. And it's it's not just Portugal. You know, a lot of people say, well, you know, we don't want to live like Portugal. Well, I don't either. But, you know, drug abuse is the same worldwide. It's not like if you're a socialist, you don't get addicted to drugs. So the problem is everywhere. It's not just there. But look at the Dutch. They, in the mid-90s, they had decriminalized cannabis pretty much. And, you know, what do they got now? They have half the adult users, half the minor users than we have. And they have no, I'm sorry, half the people that are teens, because you can smoke there at 18. Um, but people under 18 have no interest in it. And countries are always asking them, 
how you how that happened and they said we made marijuana boring well right it's it's exciting if it's illegal right yeah i you know i don't know what it is but you see the same thing in the prohibition of alcohol you know a decade before prohibition alcohol i'm trying to think of what you know we were doing two and a half or three um gallons of um methanol a day or methanol per capita i've got it here somewhere i think oh here it is uh, in 1915, we we're take we we're drinking about two and a quarter um, gallons of ethanol per capita, or per hundred thousand. In 1920, right before prohibition, we were down to about a quarter gallon per capita, and that was all done by social pressure, just like we did with smoking. We didn't outlaw it; just social pressure. It's bad. People quit using it. Exactly what happened with alcohol. By 19, was it 1925, we were now, what, eight times, almost two gallons. So we're almost, what, eight times the, the amount of alcohol intake after prohibition started. So, you know, you, you question what is it about illegal that causes them to drink? Because the same, it's the same people. You know, the only thing that changed was it became illegal, and then all of a sudden it skyrockets. You know, what is it about prohibition that causes that? But we see it everywhere. People want what they're not supposed to have. Well, it doesn't have to be legal, legislated. Um, for instance, did you try to buy toilet paper a few months back? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you can find it on the Internet for $45 for a four-pack. You know, that's signs of prohibition. People can't get what they want. Then what happened to the hand sanitizers? All of a sudden, the, that was the FDA's putting out things, you know, don't put this in the hand sanitizers because they were putting wood alcohol, which is poisonous. That's what happens during a prohibition mechanism. It doesn't have to be legislated. It just has to be restricted to the point that people can't get it. Do you get what I'm driving at? Yeah. Do you think there is an educational aspect to this on the front end? I mean, in the Netherlands, how do they go about making cannabis boring? Well, for one thing, you don't drive down the street and see billboards saying, you know, vote no on 207 with the big pot leaf. You know, they don't have that kind of stuff out because it's not legal. And that's a problem because when you're not legal, where do they get their marijuana? Where does the smoke shops or the coffee shops get their marijuana? It's an underground illegal business because it's decriminalized, not legalized. And there's a major difference because none of this stuff now is tested or anything that comes through, you know, goes into their uh, places. It's just they've been doing it a lot of years. They have a pretty functional mechanism. But there still is no control. You know, you try to find out where they come from, it's all hidden. But... If you grow a marijuana plant in your yard, the penalty is you you have to go out and pull it up. Yeah, so their system's not perfect, but results in less destruction. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because what they did when the, the U.N. attempted to pressure them into stopping this, because the U.N. was finding out people were going to Amsterdam smoking, and they didn't want that, so they put pressure on on um, the Dutch, and the Dutch basically came up with a system that said, you have to have a card to buy marijuana. Well, then they got pounded by all these places, because initially Amsterdam ignored it. So all the cities and stuff that Im implemented it started getting, their police departments started getting pounded by all these drug deals. Because the residents were buying the marijuana and then selling it to the tourists on the corner. Oh boy! So you don't, you know, we saw the same thing when we when we um, clamped down on the on the uh, Mexican government for letting marijuana. Because their original position was that's not our problem. Your people aren't. You know. Then what they did was shut down the border for about a month till Mexico complied. And then what they see, they saw an increase in air traffic flying the stuff over here. The, the demand is there, and whether the market is underground or above ground, it's going to be served. Yeah, and, and prohibition is just a failure no matter what you implement it with. You know, it, you have to, 
you have to be something worth prohibiting. You know, like you don't want people to get fissional material, fissionable material. <laughs> you know, you don't want to sell that at Circle K. Um, <laughs> and that's worth spending a lot of money to keep out of people's hands. But that's also something that can affect other people, not something that affects just you. You know, right. another issue is the driving problem. You know, um, they feel like there's a real issue with collisions. And, you know, the research does not support that. Yeah. The research, no research supports driving impaired. Let me say that right off. Okay. But when you take a person with alcohol and you put them on a closed course, you give them alcohol and they drive faster than they should. They exceed the speed limit. They drive closer to the leading vehicle and they take chances they shouldn't take when they're, you know, if they weren't drinking alcohol. Cannabis, on the other hand, the same situation. They drive slower, drive farther from the leading vehicle, and they don't take chances they would take when they weren't using cannabis. So that's probably why you see a difference and why NHTSA says, you know, there's little to no problem. There's little to no um, highway safety issue with cannabis because it does not seem to affect you. You know, all, even though all the studies show, you know, you're delayed and this and that, apparently your brain knows enough about what's happening to adjust for that. At least yeah. that's the speculation. That's a complex issue. And as you say, none of us would uh, recommend anybody driving under any kind of influence. In fact, is this state actually says um, uh, this, uh, not even the slightest bit or slightest amount of uh, impairment which, of course, would make everybody illegal at some point. Hmm. Because, you know, you get a cold and you're up 18 hours and you're going to the doctor. You know, if you're up 18 hours and you're driving, you're probably close to an 08 as far as being impaired. Hmm. You know, you may not be drinking, but your brain isn't working right, and neither is a lot of other stuff. Right. So it's kind of one of those things you got to kind of take with a grain of salt, you know, but you don't want people impaired, but there is going to be amount of impairment out there you have to deal with. Jack, let me ask you, you mentioned earlier when you got ill, are you comfortable talking about your health? And Yeah, I guess so. What was your condition? I had uh, actually couldn't get out of bed because my back hurt so bad and um, had to have paramedics load me in an ambulance, ended up having a blood infection. And they had to uh, give me, I guess, about six weeks total in the hospital on a 24-hour IV and four weeks at home on a 24-hour IV. Wow. And then they had to take my defibrillator out because of my heart because they were afraid it got infected and then put another one in afterwards. So it was a real mess. <laughs> and you're, you're, you're okay now? Well, I hope so. Yeah, I see my cardiologist in a week, so I'll find out their latest things there but yeah it took me out of you know it took me out of the things i do for pretty much a year because it started right before thanksgiving and i'm still not 100 percent. i'm trying to get back moving i'm an evangelist for cannabis for a lot of things but i have no idea if it would help with a with a blood infection well <clears throat> i don't know you know there's some things you just need western medicine to fix that's true. You know, and it's too bad. But, you know, what is curious, though, is I'd like to be able to know if, you know, if all these people that went in with this coronavirus, how many of these people were cannabis users and what was their stay in extension like? I've put out a couple blog posts about some research out of Israel around the cytokine storm. You know, your uh, immune system kind of turns on your body. Mm -hmm. And the endocannabinoid system does modulate a lot of functions, including the immune system, and they had research that showed a blend of 30 terpenes and, and some CBD helped kind of even out that immune system response. And there was another, some research out of the University of South Carolina about acquired respiratory distress syndrome, where they found that THC actually helped with that. I've also interviewed uh, Kyle Turley, an ex-NFL player, adamantly says that CBD can prevent or cure the coronavirus. And I can't go that far. You know, even the FDA came after him on that. But he's a true believer, and it certainly has helped him in many respects. 
it would be good to see some real data on it. Those research projects are, they take a while to pull together and we're just trying to defeat the virus now. We're just trying to, trying to survive. Yeah. Well, the, one of the um, universities did research on a burn unit and, you know, when you go into a burn unit, they draw blood and they want to know everything in there. And they really compared cannabis to non-drug users to I think it was cocaine and, um, alcohol there was like three of them one of them was maybe antidepressants and the funny part is about this was that the actual people on no drugs came out around nine grand or something for the the costs overall cannabis users came in actually around 8100 and then cocaine was higher than that and alcohol was the highest at about 150 grand wow and time also uh, alcohol, of course, had the highest morbidity or, um, you know, the highest death rate and cannabis had the lowest death rate. So, you know, those are the kinds of studies that we need. And when we do traffic, traffic enforcement and we have a traffic collision, we need to collect all this data and put it somewhere. And that means, you know, if they go into a hospital, they need to spend a grand to have this data collected. Because if we don't collect the data, in 20 years, we'll be in the same boat we're in now. Right. It's just fundamental assumption. We all grew up with the notion that cannabis is bad and it leads to harder drugs and it's reefer madness and all that stuff. And what you've talked about is real world tragedies based on the existing laws and enforcing those laws for a substance that is not that destructive. Well, that's part of the issue. and. You know, since you know about Ehrlichman, um, you know, his family said they know him and they didn't, you know, believe any of this. But, you know, the the numbers and everything show different. You know, when he made a comment, that, you know, he said, did we know the, that we were lying about the drugs? Of course we did. I think that pretty much caps it, that they knew what they were doing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, your biggest problem and my biggest problem and everybody else's is that if I want to research a Schedule One drug, I can get a lot of money, a hospital that will support me, and approval by the DEA, and I can research the drug. If I want to do cannabis, I have to have the same thing, but now I have to go through the National Institute of Drug Abuse, or NIDA. NIDA's charter is drug abuse, so they won't approve anything that says, I want to see if this works to help. So they wired into the mechanism a way to keep you from off, you know, they knew it worked. They wrote in the law a way to keep you from getting it legalized. And that's by putting it through a, a department that won't do that. The only way you can get it in there is say, I'm going to show you how bad this drug is. And if it turns out good, that's too bad. And that, that has happened. So it's a battle that needs to be fought on on several fronts. And I know you want to stay apolitical, but would it be fair to say that you and or lean towards sort of a libertarian approach on this? Well, if libertarians being thrown in, you know, not being thrown in jail because you're not bothering anybody. Yeah, I guess so. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a tough question to answer because I can't speak for everybody. But we stay out of the politics, but we notice things like, uh, you know, Camilla had, what, a thousand of her cases overturned because she violated California law by not giving defense attorneys the money or the information that was required by law that showed they were innocent or that the, the more tactfully or more truthfully was it that showed how um, poor some of the witnesses were, how unreliable they were, and basically ended up turning over a thousand of her convictions. Um, she also says she does not want to legalize marijuana. She will decriminalize, not de- mm-hmm. you know, not legalize, which is not what we want. We need it out of the hands of the federal government. You know, Trump, on the other hand, said yes, we will. You know, if you put give me a legalized bill, I'll sign it. You know, the governor of Arizona, uh, Ducey, uh, told the legislature the same thing. You give me a legalized bill, I'll sign it. Uh, The attorney general of Arizona, Mark Brnovich, said you need to legalize marijuana through the legislature. And 
I still go down there and they tell me I'm not going to legalize these drugs. So, you know, what are you supposed to do? You know, it's not that it's a Republic or a Democratic thing. It's the whole group are focused on the point that this is bad and that, you know, we just have to keep fighting it forever. Well, do you think it's better to tackle this on a state-by-state basis, or would it be better to have a federal declaration that cannabis is not illegal? Well, it's the federals that's holding everything up. Mm-hmm. You know, the only reason it hasn't been changed there is we can't petition the federal government like an initiative. That's what the Convention of States is going to do. They're actually going to, you know, there's a clause in our Constitution that allows the states to get together and override the federal government, basically. Mm -hmm. And, you know, if we don't take control, a lot of people feel if we don't take control of their Constitution back, we're not going to be able to do a lot of this stuff. But something like that would let our legislators know that we're serious and they need to pay attention to us. And they're not doing that. At least that's what most people feel like. You know, they think, you know, most people think this is bad. You know, they pull up data that says, you know, look at the increase in accidents. And I'm sure you've seen those, haven't you? Yeah. You know, know, what are they based on? You know, where do they get this data? Well, this data comes from arrest data. So that when the guy here is arrested and has metabolized and prosecuted, he's a DUI. Well, he's not DUI, probably. So what they're doing is the old computer trick, garbage in, garbage out. They're feeding it a bunch of data. These people are per se DUI. Now, all of a sudden, we have a skyrocket in these people DUIs. Well, there's no basis for it. It's because you legislated something. It's kind of like legislating anybody with blue eyes is DUI. Well, in a couple of years, you're going to say, we can't let people with blue eyes drive because of DUI. Hmm. You get what I'm driving at? Yeah. You know, the legislation is put in place to say you're impaired when you're not necessarily impaired. NHTSA says that metabolites are useless, yet that's what we prosecute all of our DUIs on in Arizona is is, uh, metabolites. And all the science says it's useless. You know, anybody that knows anything about metabolites knows it's a useless science for conviction purposes. All it means is you've been exposed to the molecule. And Wait a, minute, we, a week ago or two weeks ago. Well, or we see the same thing happening to, you know, young middle-class women that go in, or even upper-class women, go in to have a baby. They do a blood draw, and they're, they're, they test positive for opiates. When, in fact, all they did is stop at Panera and buy a poppy seed muffin. Mm. And yet there's enough morphine in there to trigger that. Mm. And then they end up having their child withheld. You know, this is what the drug war is doing. Wow. Well, tell us what the listener can do to help support LEAP in your mission, because it's important. I mean, uh, again, being on the front lines and having this voice is is a huge thing. And I want to thank you for being involved. But how can listeners help? Well, the best thing to do is send money. You know, I mean, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Leap's always needing funds. Um, But, you know, you can go out and you can talk to legislators. That's, you know, the best thing you can do is is make your word known to legislators. You know, don't get in this thing where you sign the, you know, where where the legislator goes to his desk and his secretary hands him a stack, you know, that's a foot high of the same thing printed over and over and over again. You know, that, you know, he, he knows somebody got in the computer and did that and probably just going to toss them. Um, you need to, you know, writing a personal letter is always better. Writing an email is good. You know, the canned emails work, but you get a canned response usually, and most, most legislators know that. But the best thing you can do is get down, get out, talk to people, Get the true word of it out. Understand the, the science behind it. So when somebody says, no, 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 these people are, you know, if, if you legalize, everybody will be addicted. Well, we know that's not true because of this, this, and this. They don't know it's true. They assume it's true. Just like they assume if you have metabolites, you're intoxicated. And we know that's not true. 
So it's it's hard, you know, to get these views over and to get the people to understand that they have the wrong view of this. So get educated, get involved in discussions and conversations about this. Talk to your lawmakers and just get out there. Yeah, that's you know the best thing you can do. And and you had mentioned, do you think it's a state thing? But what makes this move is that the people have got the states to legalize medical marijuana. Okay, then once people start realizing, hey, this isn't so bad, then they moved on to legalization, you know, recreational legalization or adult use. And from there, they'll probably go on to other drugs. You know, when they realize eventually down the road somewhere that these drugs aren't the problem. If you want to deal with the drugs that are killing people, deal with the alcohol. That's what's killing people in our state. That's a straight-up poison, and we know that. Yeah, and we know that. Not only that, but if you watch TV in the morning where they have a guy run into somebody going the wrong way, the first thing out of the DPS officer's mouth is, we have a real alcohol problem. You know, that's the drug. That's the issue. But, you know, if you look at the numbers, say, do you want somebody driving, say um, you have somebody take heroin. Do you want them driving? No. How about sleeping pills? Do you want them out there driving? No, sir. Okay. Ed, if you take what NHTSA says is the collision odds increase of taking a morphine or what's called a narcotic analgesic, it's a 17% increase in odds of collision. That doesn't sound very good. Okay, you take heroin or you take sleeping pills, that's a 19% increase in collisions. Okay, do you know what the DUI limit for alcohol is? What is it now? 0.08. Okay. Yeah, for a regular person, it's 0.04 if you have a commercial license, whether you're driving commercially or not. Um, at 0.03, your odds of collision with alcohol is 20%. Wow. So you exceeded all the worst drugs already. Mm-hmm. At at uh, 0.04, there's a 60% chance of colli- increase in collision. 0.05, there's a 100% chance chance of increase in collision. Wow. You know, and that's why NISA says that if you have a, uh, it's called a poly drug situation, more than one drug, and alcohol is one of those drugs, it's the cause of the accident, period. Well, and that's another front on the, in this war is the alcohol lobby. I mean, the entrenched financial interests. Yeah, good luck. Well, that's one of the issues. You know, you tell this to a legislator, and they go, "God, you're right," but I can't put a bill like that up. I'd never get re, you know, reelected. We're back to politics, even. even well, I'm we sorry, but you know, everything you're griping about is related somehow. You know, I'd like to be able to say, "Yeah, it's great. We should all just use it, and that'd be it." But you know. We're not at that point yet, and until we, you know, get the people to understand, as a general rule, drugs aren't going to be an issue. You know, even alcohol probably wouldn't be an issue if we wouldn't feed it. You know, we don't show the kind of ads for alcohol like we do for cigarettes. You know, and that's how you stop people from drinking and driving, is you tell them the reality of it. Not that it's the thing to do on the weekends, which is what we do. Right. You know, and even you know that you're better off probably smoking a joint than, you know, drinking alcohol because we know it's, you know, our intoxication in mid-Latin comes where it came from means poison. So <laughs> what can you uh, say? Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm yeah. halfway through uh, Sober October. I haven't had any alcohol this month at all. And for me, sober means alcohol. I'm, I'm, I can still vape cannabis and stuff. So Well, you know, yeah. you, we look at the same things. With the vaping industry, now they're trying to keep, you know, I don't know what the law is for buying vapes. Or, you know, I can't believe that a, a 12-year-old can walk into a store and buy a vape pen. But, you know, if that's true, then that's an issue. But, you know, vaping is substantially safer than cigarettes because of all the content of the crap in cigarettes. And what they're going to do by prohibiting this stuff is drive these kids. They're already addicted, so they're going to go to cigarettes. Yeah. It's uh, 
harm reduction, you know, if you, and again, the, the politics of it are always going to be there. You just have to find out how to deal with them. And I think you're right. Education and talking to your legislators is, is the place yeah. to start. We'll see where we go with it. Have you ever read, um, I hope you don't mind, it's a plug for a book, but it's out of print. A guy named Dan Baum wrote it back in, I think it's 19, mid-90s, 97 or something. It's called Smoke and Mirrors, The Politics of Failure or something like that, or The Drug War and the Politics of Failure. And it outlines what happened back in the 60s of why we have a drug war. If you can find that, you should read it. Um, I think I've seen it on the Internet since it's out of print. I think I've actually seen it on the Internet. So I'm going to look that up. Yeah, it's yeah. D-A-N, Dan, and Baum, B-A-U-M. And I've got the book here somewhere. I don't know what okay. I did with it. But <laughs> Jack, where can uh, the listeners find LEAP online? Well, it's lawenforcementactionpartnership.org. But I'm pretty lazy, and being a programmer for a bunch of years, I type leap.cc. That was our original link. It's still active. And are you on Twitter and those places? I do have a Facebook account, and if you send something directly to me, I have a jack.wilborn at lawenforcementactionpartnership.org account where they can email me. And I think they can put jack.wilborn uh at leap.cc and hit the same thing. As you said earlier, if they want to send money, the best place to go is... It's uh, go to the Leap site, and yeah. you can donate there. You know, I'd love to have your money. It's not like I'm throwing it away. <laughs> like, can't guarantee it'll go into that. <laughs> <laughs> is there anything we should cover that we haven't? Well, generally, there's a guy named Myron, Jeffrey Myron, that's an economist, and he produced a bunch of works. He was like a professor emeritus at you know, one of the big colleges back east. And he did a lot of research and stuff for the government. And one of the things he said about prohibition is when, it doesn't matter what you prohibit, like I was saying. If you prohibit something, and whatever you prohibit is mutually, you know, the trading of which is mutually beneficial between two parties, then prohibition will fail. So basically... Yeah, so that's basic. You know, if you got something somebody else wants, you can sell it for more money. That prohibition will fail. And it mm -hmm. doesn't matter if it's another person, your neighbor, your next city, the next state, or the next country. Supply of law and demand. Well, it's a supply. Prohibition. It's prohibition. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it's how prohibition functions. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that's what the people need to understand is, you know, whatever you prohibit, better be worth your prohib your prohibition because you're going to grow the problem just like we did with drugs right countervailing demand is going to yeah and, yeah and you know the worst part that you can't get across to these people is that we have the drug problem but now with the drug problem we now have the criminal problem which is the real problem the drugs aren't the problem the problem is the gangs violence and murder associated with transportation and distribution of these drugs that's a, a big perspective i mean it, it's a big ripple that goes out from a dumb set of laws well they were you know if you believe that they were put there by nixon for political purposes um then you can understand why they did it even though it was anti-american you know basically violated our bill of rights numerous other things but you know that's the way things are done sometimes in politics look at it today you know we need to get the feds out of the drug business you know, whether it's I, marijuana or anything, you know, and, you know, I, at least with marijuana, we know it's pretty safe. You know, it's not like, you know, you really can't get addicted to it, you know, even though it's not, it's not physically addicted. That's how I measure it. You know, the most addictive substance on the earth is sugar. So, <laughs> You know, we don't. We certainly don't prohibit that. No, so, and some of them have tried, and it hasn't worked out too well. So the bottom line is what we are is, you know, we want to let people do what they need to do, let people get access to this stuff because it is safer, it prevents the harm, you know, keep people from getting arrested, give them, give them the attitude that, you know, have the attitude that if they have a problem they can go to a police officer. He's going to save their butt. 
that's what we want to do. We want to make, we want to return the police, their warriors, to their position, which is guardians. And, you know, that's kind of a bottom line of, I think, where we're driving. I think that makes a lot of sense, and I think anybody would be in favor of it. I think that's a good place to wrap it up, and I want to thank you, Jack, for sharing your perspective. It's certainly a really important aspect of society right now. We would be in a better place if we had a, a sensible approach to the cannabis laws. Yep. Thank you again for taking the time. Not a problem. You take care. You've been listening to the Cannaboom Podcast with host Tom Stacy. If you like the show and want to know more, please check us out at Cannaboom with a K dot com. And please leave us a review at Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. See you next week.